The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Turn to Ephesians 5, we'll jump right in. I know everybody got full bellies and nothing more offensive than having a group of people fall asleep while you're talking. So I'm going to try to help you not do that and I will talk fast. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be looking at probably the most well-known passage in scripture on, uh, on marriage. Now, uh, in the Bible, we have, uh, we have a couple types of teaching. We have teaching where uh, oftentimes you'll see in a narrative, a narrative just means a story, and that's where you read a story and then you draw out of that story personal application. Make sense? Make, so, so I read a story and maybe I'm not supposed to live out exactly the details of that story, but that story is teaching me something about my life. I think everybody can understand that. Uh, an, an example would be... Uh, story of the prodigal son, uh, the story of one of the Old Testament narratives, maybe Ruth and Boaz, a lot of biblical principles of relationships that we could draw out of that. Uh, but then also sometimes uh, in the Word of God, what we're getting is a teaching on, on a principle where the Scripture's being real clear. And so it's saying, maybe it's saying do this or don't do that. Maybe it's giving us an imperative. An imperative is a command. So sometimes the scripture gives an imperative. It, it gives us something to specifically follow or do. That's easy. You got it? Hold on, hold on just a second, all right? My, my lovely secretary. <laughs> so I told Spencer this illustration I wanted to use tonight, and then I wrote down the, like a... Um, uh, like a keyword to help me remember the illustration that I couldn't remember the illustration. So as I was walking off stage, I was like, what was that illustration I told you? He's like, give me a minute to think about it. So I said, just interrupt me. And then, so that's what just happened. Um, so got it. I got it. All right. And it's perfect. It's in the intro. It's when I was going to share it. All right. So, um, so sometimes the scripture is, uh, we, uh, I was talking to uh, some good friends yesterday who were here attending the conference. Uh, sometimes Scripture, it's very critical that we interpret it through the, like the biblical intent of the passage. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was growing up, my, my, uh, I grew up in sort of an independent, fundamental setting. If you don't know what that means, it's like really strict, legalistic Christianity where there's a lot of rules that you've got to abide by or you're considered not a good Christian. And, uh, and I wasn't a good Christian because I wasn't even a Christian at all until I was, like, almost 20 years old. So, but I was just, you know, going to church. My mom would take me. I'm really thankful for that. But there were a lot of rules. And I can remember one of the things that would often get quoted is a, is a verse from uh, 1 or 2 Corinthians that says, Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. And that verse would get applied to things like, because, uh, like, don't listen to secular music or have your hair cut a certain length or dress a certain way it would be applied to 
to certain rules that would where it, the way it would be conveyed to me is you want to look different than the world act different than the world that verse will be applied when in context that verse is speaking of it's speaking to a group of christians in the city of corinth who didn't understand what christian worship looked like because they had spent all of their time in a pagan temple and they were new converts and so they were taking pagan temple practices and they were applying them to the Christian worship service so they were speaking in unknown tongues getting drunk practicing temple uh, prostitution things like that and so Paul says to them come out of that and this is something new be separate from that okay so there's a context there was an intended message that was being given still with me so sometimes when we're reading scripture there's an in, a very clear intended message Sometimes there's a narrative and we draw on that narrative. So there are narratives in scripture that we can draw great uh, like, like great things out of that will help us as husbands, as wives, as sons, daughters, parents, whatever. But then sometimes in scripture there is a very clear teaching given where there is an imperative or a command that's given. And then with that command often will be an example. And we all work better this way. So if you're, like if you're a teacher, and how many teachers, educators in the room? Any educators? Good, about a dozen, okay? So if you're a teacher, you know this, that if you can give a concept or a principle and then hold that up with an illustration, it clicks, doesn't it? You know that when a, when a pastor is preaching a sermon on Sunday morning, the moment he rolls into telling a story, maybe it's a personal experience, maybe it's a joke, you as the listener connect and start to pay attention. We're drawn into narrative, we're drawn into illustration, we're drawn into, um, in, into uh, that type of teaching, all right? And so oftentimes when we're given principles, but then there's no example, then it's, we, we're left with sort of the responsibility of figuring out how do I apply this principle, okay? So when we see the initial teaching on marriage in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, and if you were at the Be Strong Men's Conference last month, we hammered away uh, in Genesis chapter 2. And so when we look at Genesis 2 and 3, God lays out the first marriage, and he gives principles to live by. At that point in time, there has never been an example of that. And so the first couple then show us how not to do it, right? And that's a good way to learn something. Many of you have learned how to be husbands by knowing how not to be a husband or a father based on what you grew up in. You with me? Many of you ladies have learned what it's not like to be a godly wife or mother based on what you saw as an example. Some of you, that, that's been your experience. And so we can see someone do something wrong, we can learn from it, and we can take that example and grow. But nothing is a better teacher than seeing someone do something correctly and then having that person teach us how to do it correctly and to do it step by step and to allow us to fail and then to help us see where we failed and to show us grace and help us go to the next step. And marriage is an institution and it is a structure that's laid out for us in scripture where we're given very clear teaching and the ultimate perfect example of what it looks like to get it right. And we're given tons of examples of how to get it wrong. But in Christ, we have the perfect example of what it looks like to be in a godly, healthy marriage. Now, the, the burden of responsibility is primarily placed, when it, when it comes to this, is primarily placed on the shoulders and the head of the husband. So tonight I'm going to speak primarily to men. Wives, please don't do this to your husband when you hear an, a, an especially applicable or exceptional point. <clears throat> I hope you're listening right now. That's for you. Okay. He doesn't need that. Please 
ladies, you are not the Holy Spirit right now. Sometimes he, he'll use you in that way. But then I just want you to just chill. Like, I want you to do more things like, he's not talking about you right now. Like, find somewhere you can say that, okay? That'll be helpful. He'll be encouraged. It'll, it'll go a lot further. But I am. Tonight, we're going to, like, it's going to be, for us as men, it's going to be, we got to wear this. we got to wear this. And, but here's what, we get to walk through this, this really well-known text with Jesus as our ultimate example. He tells us how to get this right. Now, um, there is one more thing, one more caveat before we drill into this text. In Scripture, even the best example, uh, which is what we have here, um, we've got to figure out where it doesn't exactly fit in our lives. And so let me tell you how the example of Christ and his relationship to the church, where it's always going to fall short in terms of how we carry it out is this. Jesus puts his spirit inside of his bride. And so he's got sort of like a lead or a tether to the soul and the conscience of his bride. Men, we don't have that with our wives. Like I'm not her conscience. I don't have I don't have a joystick to control her emotions. Amen. You got no control over that. Praise the Lord. You don't have to try to figure that out. You don't have control over it, okay? Ladies, you don't have control over his conviction. You, like your spirit is not steering his moral compass, right? Now, so in the, biblical, in the biblical paradigm of marriage, Jesus to his bride puts his spirit in us and so he can control certain aspects through conviction, through grief. He can bring grief and sorrow over sin. He can bring about uh, clarity to a thought. And sometimes it's difficult for us as husbands and wives to figure that out. So I want my wife to get this right, or you want your husband to get this right and to understand, and you can have a hard time communicating that sometimes. And so what closes the gap, what closes the gap is what we can do like Christ is we can extend grace to our spouse. You can always extend grace to your spouse. And so when you can't figure it out exactly how Jesus is doing it to his bride, you can, or, and, and with and through his bride, then you can extend grace to your spouse. I hope that those principles uh, are clear and that they're going to come out in the message. So uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 25, and we're going to read to verse, uh, we're going to go to 30, to verse 30 tonight. We're going to look at five, six verses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by washing of water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us understand your word tonight. Give us understanding and clarity And I pray that you would grow marriages. I pray that if there are areas that need healing, that you would apply that healing. I pray that if there are areas that are closed off, that you would open those areas up. God, that you would give us total transparency with our spouses and that we would love one another well and that marriages would be stronger as a result of this weekend and even specifically of this message. Now, please only speak what you would have spoken Hide me behind your words, your, your word, your authority, and the cross of Christ Jesus, and give us what we need in this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's five verbs that husbands are called to in the, in the first part of this text. Now, the reason it's important to look at these five verbs is because it's a good reminder that husbands are called to action. Now, if we study 
Adam's failure as a husband, and then we trace all of the sons of Adam through history, what men tend to do when things are not going well is they tend to do one of two things. They either try to fix it, right men? I want to fix it. If it's broke, I want to fix it, like right now. And we've all learned probably, even, even some of the newlyweds in the room have probably already learned this either in the dating process, engagement, or early stages of marriage, that sometimes an immediate fix is not, is not what's needed. And so it's like, let's take a pause. Let's think about what we're going to say. Let's think about how we're going to move forward. Oftentimes we want to fix something. But then at some point when a man can't get something figured out, what he does is he shuts down and he gets quiet. And, he, and we want to quit trying. We, we, we want to just give up. And, and we would never admit that because as men, we don't want to say that we're, I don't want to ever say, well, I just gave up. Like I want to think of myself as somebody who doesn't give up no matter what. But oftentimes in conflict, in a marriage, what will happen is uh, a man will move towards inaction rather than action. And what we've got in this scripture is five words that are action words that men are called to. Let's look at them briefly. The first one is love. We're going to unpack that one. What is marital love? What are the godly characteristics of marital love? We're going to look at those tonight. So the first one is love. Your wives is Christ loved the church. The next one gave himself up for her. So to give, think of that old U2 song where it says, and you give yourself away. Remember that? I don't remember the rest of the lyrics. Hopefully Hopefully they don't contradict the punchline. But anyway, the punchline works right here, okay? Give yourself away. All right, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. What does sanctify mean? If you're a new Christian or that's a word maybe you've heard, but you don't know the definition, sanctify is, here's what that means. Sanctify is the root of sanctification. And sanctification is the process that every Christian is going through in this life. So as a Christian, you are in the process of sanctification. And sanctification is the word that describes the entirety of your Christian life while you're on the earth. Okay, so you be, there's a point where you become a Christian. Prior to that, there's no sanctification. It is a Christian word. So it's a word for people who are in Christ. And from the day you become a Christian till the day you die, it's the process where God is shaping, molding, and conforming you more into the image of Jesus. So it's the process of becoming more like Jesus. Okay, so he says that husbands might sanctify their wives. So I have a role as a husband in the sanctification of my wife in helping her become more like Jesus. And we're going to see in a minute that could take two, two ways that can take place. I can be a, an, an aid. I can be a, like a tool in the hands of the master, and he's using me to shape and mold or I can be something that God uses in spite of me, then he sanctifies her. So, so I do things wrongly, and God grows her through that hardship, and that's not what we want. Okay, so sanctify her, having cleansed her. So there's the fourth verb, cleansed. My men, this don't mean like, like, a, a, like an actual bath. You know what I'm saying? Like this is a very, like this word's got a lot of depth, and we're going to unpack it in a minute. Cleansed her by the washing of water. Now he gives us the, the, the clarity on what he's talking about with the word. So it's not a physical cleansing. It's a spiritual cleansing. It's a constant ongoing thing. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That's the fifth verb, the fifth word of action, present. So I have a job, and that job as a husband is that my wife would go through the process of sanctification over the course of her life. She would become more like Jesus, and one day 
she would stand before the Lord and I would give an account for the type of woman she is in terms of my investment in her life. So all of those words call us to action. As men, we got work to do. We got work to do as husbands. So let's, let's, uh, let's unpack it. We're going to really look at the word love uh, in detail. So listen to this. It's from the book Love and Respect that John and Spicy referenced a time or two, quoted a time or two, uh, in which that book, by the way, is fantastic. It's by a dude named uh, Emerson Egerix or something like that. You look up the book Love and Respect, and he's on YouTube doing the lesson. He's teaching in different churches, and the book's really good. It's, if you're looking for a book to go through as a husband and wife, it's a really good one. 7,000 people surveyed and asked, when you are in a conflict when you're with your spouse, do you feel unloved or do you feel disrespected? Do you feel unloved or do you feel disrespected? 83% of men said that, that when they're in a conflict with their wives, they feel disrespected. Isn't that interesting? And almost the same number of women, 72%, said they feel unloved. And what the survey revealed is that women have a need, especially in the middle of conflict, to feel loved because when they begin to deflate or become exasperated, the first thing that happens is they feel unloved. They feel unloved. This is biblical, okay? This is also then secular in terms of this survey. And then the same thing with men, that as soon as there's conflict, we start to feel disrespect. She didn't respect me. She, she wouldn't talk to me like that if she respected me. And so to exasperate or deflate your spouse, he or she only needs to feel disrespected or unloved. And by the largest majority, women need to feel loved. And husbands, what I would say is that in the midst of conflict, that's where it's critical for us to make sure we're expressing love. What this does is this pushes us to learn how to communicate. And as men, a lot of times we're not real good at that. So I've got to communicate so that my wife feels loved when I'm going through conflict, when we're going through conflict. Now, both men and women need both love and respect. But under strain of conflict, they respond to the need differently. So women need to be respected, right? Men need to feel loved, yeah. But they respond under stress or conflict. They respond differently. Men and women respond differently. And so this is what we know to be true. Now, tomorrow morning, we're going to look at some scripture that really drives that point home and supports it. But tonight, I want to just look at the word love and make sure that we're getting this right. Because, men, it's worth getting right. It's worth getting this right. It's worth figuring it out and getting it right in a biblical context. Verse 25 through 30 breaks down love into three types of love. Three types of love. Verse 25, sacrificial love. Verses 26 and 27, sanctifying love. And verse three, uh, and, and uh, number three, verses 28 through 30, self-love. So sacrificial love, sanctifying love, and self-love. And what we're going to do is we're just going to look at those three types of love and the way that the passage breaks it down. So first, let's look at sacrificial love. It says, men, we're to love our wives. And from the survey we just looked at, it's critical that she always feel loved. It's critical that she always feel loved. Men, I'll give you a little secret. If she feels loved, you will get respect. If she feels like her needs are being met and she's being loved well, she will respect you. She'll give you respect. Have you ever seen a situation where a, gir a, a girl or a woman is with a man and maybe he's, maybe he's abusive or maybe he's, uh, maybe he's emotionally abusive, maybe he's physically abusive, maybe he's unfaithful to her and you know it and, and 
and you ask her, you have a conversation where you say, uh, do, you love, do you love him? Yeah, I love him. But do you respect him? No, I don't have any respect for him. And a woman can love without respect. But when a woman loves and respects, that's a gospel kind of love in a marriage. So if love and respect can stay intact, that's a gospel-saturated kind of a relationship. And so sacrificial love is the type of love that Christ exampled for us when he went to the cross. To the cross. So we said, here's an example that's the perfect example, and it's Christ's example for us when he goes to the cross. So when he goes to the cross, he's laying down his life for us. So sacrificial love is loving someone unto death unto death that's a characteristic of sacrificial love that i would love someone unto death now to love someone unto death is not the same thing as being willing to die for someone like physically right i have a cousin that's in the secret service and i remember asking him and he's he's nearing retirement and i'm like hey dude you're you're almost off duty and nobody's tried to kill a president on your watch like and i and i and i'm always poking fun at him i'm like Hey, man, don't get to know the president too much or you might not want to take that bullet, you know? And I'm always picking at him, and he's like, we've had conversations where I say, so what's that like to know that if, if, the, if the time comes, you've got to take a bullet for a person that you might not, like, ideologically agree with, philosophically, different worldview? And he's like, oh, you can, d- that, that part's not a problem. You can die for someone when you believe in a greater good or a greater cause. You can die for someone, like, like I can get there, Okay. So we're not just talking about that a husband's willing to physically die for his wife. That's, there's, there's only a little bit of nobility in that. Many of you have heard the story when Little and I were dating. That's my wife. And uh, we've been married. Um, I'm, you probably assumed that was my wife. I wouldn't reference an, uh, an ex-girlfriend um, from, from 25 years ago, but 27 years ago. But she's a girl playing drums. But um, she's not currently playing, but you understand. And so, you guys see her over there? Nobody sees her? A chicken and waffles. <laughs> Hallucination. Uh, so, um, so, I remember, uh, so we're dating right when the, right when the movie, uh, the Robin Hood movie, the one, there's been about a bazillion of them, but the one with Kevin Costner came out. And I remember that, that the great philosophical rocker, Brian Adams, had penned a phenomenal love ballad had one of the greatest lines of all time. You remember it, don't you? Everything I do, I do it for you. Well, that's a good line, but the best line was when he built and built and built and built and then said, I'd die for you. That's art, man. That was like, I was like, I was like, if I could write a song, I would have wrote that one. That's, that's my, that's my ballad right there. And I remember I thought, I can't wait to try that out and tell that to Little. We were dating. And I remember we were sitting, we were literally sitting on a dock, we're fishing, we're sitting on the edge of a pond, we're fishing one afternoon, we're dating, and we had a bucket of chicken. I mean, that's like a country music romance right there, you know, like, <laughs> bucket of chicken, fishing, it's a bad country song. And I remember going, you know, no matter what happens, I'll be there for you, and you know, I would die for you. And I remember, she, Little's like black and white, like realist, like Little and Spicy, I don't know if you picked up on that with Spicy, they're, they're literally like the same personality, and I can see Spicy saying this, and Little went, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, I mean, I'm saying like I would, I would die, I would die for you, you know, like if, like, like in that movie, you know, like, <laughs> like if the sheriff of Nottingham was coming after you, 
I, I would die, like I would, I'm saying, you know, like, I don't know, like if there was a shark and he, an alligator in the pond, like if, I'm saying I would, <clears throat> never mind, <laughs> just it didn't work out, you know, and so like the idea of physically dying for our wives, men, we get that, there's a part of me, like as a dude, there's a part of me that thinks, I don't, like I want to live to be old, but I don't want to live to be like messing your pants old, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Like, so if I could go out with my boots on fighting the enemy for my wife's honor at a fairly ripe age, that would be awesome. <laughs> Died for, like, oh, here lies this man who made it into the later years of life, but still had a lot of living left. But he died with his boots on fighting a grizzly bear in defense of his wife, you know, or whatever. So, like, we've got, like, we romanticize these ideas. And the idea of physically dying is like, like, that's easy. Anybody could do that. I'll never forget, uh, me and Little were camping one night. We're way up here on top of the mountain. If you, if you were, if, uh, you probably can't see it from here, but straight, straight up here to the south, there's a mountain range called the Valley River Mountains. We're on the back side of that. We were, and there was a drought. We had hiked way in, and, and we're so back up in there, and it was so hot. And I remember uh, going to sleep and waking up, and she's sitting with her pistol over a log. It's dark, and I can see her, you know, and I'm like, what is going on? She's got her pistol, and like this, and, and I'm like, what are you doing? And she said, I think there's a bear out there. I was like, there's a bunch of bears out there. We're, like, we're in the woods, you know? Like, that's where they live. <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff out there. Go to sleep. And she's like, well, I just know that if that bear attacks us, you're going to sleep through it, and I'm going to die. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 you remember 10 years ago when I told you that Brian Adams song? <laughs> I'll die for you. She's like, no, you will sleep through it. I know you will. So, so like, like in your most noble calls, man, there are going to be times where you're going to sleep through the battle and not even realize it. Like, you're willing to die physically? You would die for her physically. Nobody's, nobody questions that. Like, if you're a dude... It is hardwired into you to live sacrificially when it comes to that. We have many veterans in the room who will go to war and live for days on end off of a, an MRE every two days and be hungry and be hot or cold or wet or scared. Like It's hardwired into men to do that. But when he's saying that, we're to die to ourselves and to love sacrificially. He's talking about in the process of living, we're to live as if we were dying to our basic needs, demands, and desires. We're dying to those things for our wives. Like it's not, in other words, it's not about me. Am I willing to live in such a way that death is daily on display as I die to myself? which is really the core base tenet of discipleship, where I'm to die daily in terms of taking up my cross and following Jesus. This is practical for single people. So the key then, men, here's the key that unlocks this. The key to dying to self and loving your wife sacrificially is not to figure out how do I die to my desires that conflict with her desires. How do I die, die to my needs that are in conflict with her needs. No, no, it's how do I die daily in the act of being sanctified through the process of discipleship. In other words, Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. And as I die to myself and die to my fleshly desires, then I will die to those things that would inflict damage on that marriage relationship. So it's first a discipleship process. 
before it's a, can I get it right with my wife? No, I've got to be intentional in terms of, hope that makes sense. I've got to be intentional in terms of how I serve and love her. But the first death I've got to die daily is I've got to die death to self for the good of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, and for my own sanctification. And in doing that, I'm laying down my life for the good of my wife. <clears throat> now, second characteristic of sacrificial love. Y'all gonna, if you're new to Snowbird, you're going to have a hard time following my outline if you are a note taker. The guys asked me what the title of the sermon was, and I said, yeah, let's call it Women Be Shopping. And then I told him I was joking. <laughs> so I couldn't even come up with a title for the sermon. Uh, and my outline's tricky. So l- let me help you. So the first point is, and we're looking at three types of love. The first love is sacrificial love. And the first characteristic of sacrificial love is that it's a love unto death, whereby I die to myself. Second characteristic of sacrificial love if i'm to love like christ i'm going to love like christ loved in john 15 16 and 17 i'm going to pray for my wife christ prayed for his bride in that in that beautiful high priestly prayer he said god i pray for those that are going to come along and that you're going to save and you're going to bring into the relationship he's praying for his future bride maybe some of you did this i don't know maybe some of you were christians as young men you prayed for your future bride i know that for me uh for for little and i we, for each of our children, and I'm sure many of you do this, you pray for your, the, the future spouse of your children. We were doing this before we had kids. We didn't have a child. Till we'd been married six years before we had a kid. For six years. And actually, I remember starting this while we were engaged. Let's start praying for our future kids. Start praying for them. Pray for their spouse. Pray for the husbands, wives, whatever God's going to bring. And so there's this prayer. And so Jesus exampled that when he prayed for his future spouse. So Christ prays for his bride, so we, as husbands, are to pray for our wives. Men, I ask you a question. Do you daily, John and Spicy challenged you to pray with your wife. Let me ask you, do you go before the Lord in the quiet place and intercede for your wife, just you and God? Pray for your wife. Pray for your wife. What it'll do is it'll open your heart to her. It'll help you extend grace to her it'll help you see the world through her eyes third characteristic characteristic of sacrificial love is that jesus is attentive to the needs of the bride he understands us perfectly he knows every literally the hairs of our head are numbered so he's attentive to the needs of the bride so uh, as a husband my task my job is to be attentive to the needs of my bride ladies if you have a husband who tries to tend to your needs sometimes that might be overbearing but be thankful that he's not a husband who does not attend to your needs who doesn't care emotionally the fact that he's here this weekend means that these things matter to him or he'd be doing something else it is hunting season and football season the most christian godly season of the year hunting and football praise the lord number four fourth characteristic of sacrificial love a husband will be faithful when there's sexual tension a husband will be faithful when there's a woman at work that shows him attention he will be faithful he's going to be faithful faithfulness is a is so we we insert the characteristic of of marital faithfulness into the idea of that's what sacrificial love is because it denies the the demands and desires of the flesh for the need of the wife now ladies as we work through these can you pull can can you draw on these principles in terms of how you love your husband sure yes sacrificial love yeah absolutely absolutely but in the context of the text 
uh, it says husbands are to love their wives this way, so that's why we're focusing that way. The second type of love uh, is sanctifying love. Second type of love is sanctifying love. And you see that in verses 26 and 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So the, there, with sanctifying love, there's a goal. Like, we need goals in every aspect of life. So you need educational goals. You need to set down one of the great joys and privileges that those of us that are here in full-time leadership have, sitting down with young men and young women. And God, a long time ago, burned it on our hearts to try to train up young men that will combat the entitlement, lazy mindset of the generation we're dealing with right now, to go against that. And so we're trying to train and raise up godly young men, sitting with young men often, just this week on several occasions, sitting with young men and saying, okay, you're here for one year, let's put some goals in place for that year, and let's work towards goals beyond that year. Where where are you going to be two years from now? Where are you going to be three years from now? And it's amazing, oftentimes light bulbs start coming on, like, oh, Life is not that complicated. I just need goals to be set, and then I need to be able to move towards those goals. Well, in marriage, the ultimate goal at the end is that my wife is going to stand before Christ, and I'm going to give an account somehow for how I led and, and loved and, and conducted myself in that marriage so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So there's two pictures that are laid, laid out here. When, when, when you think of washing for presentation okay so like like this pumpkin this pumpkin is just a pumpkin right so if we had a pumpkin carving pumpkin <laughs> if we had a pumpkin carving contest we would everybody would, would would carve their design or whatever and then when you're all done with it you would present that right and they would all be lined up and whoever the judge is they'd come along and they'd judge which one was best so there's a there's a presentation that takes place now there are some things that the presentation involves like washing and cleaning right like a car show or something like that now in the jewish context for a wedding to occur on the wedding day a bride would be washed in a very ceremonial process was a ceremonial washing that would take place that was symbolic of she was being prepared and cleansed ritualistically for her wedding day. Everybody follow that? So, so it wasn't just like she took a shower, got put on the dress. And we have similar things in our culture. But in the Jewish culture, it was a very specific washing and cleansing that would take place. It was a ceremonial cleansing that had a lot of Old Testament connotation. So then, the reason being, because that bride represents the bride of Christ on the day that Christ takes his bride into that great marriage that will lead us into eternity. So, there's an, there's, so what we would say here is there's an eternal or an eschatological context. That means this is pointing to something in the future. So does the wedding day mar- matter? Yeah. Do the vows matter? Yes. I know that as a pastor and, a, and, and someone who officiates wedding ceremonies i take that very serious take it very serious what i'm going to say in front of these people what these two people we talked we looked last night and touched on it again this morning at covenant and what covenant love looks like and so when he's talking about let me read it again verse 26 uh that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle it's it's a reference to this wedding presentation 
So the idea is, just as Christ, over the course of our lives, is preparing us with His Holy Spirit in us, and with His Word of God before us, He's preparing us for the day that we'll be with Him, meet Him, that great wedding day. The second thing, though, is the idea or the picture of washing from sin through the powerful love of a husband who cares more than anything about the holiness of his wife. The thing, husbands, that we need to care most about our wives more than anything else is we need to care about their holiness. We need to care about their sanctification process. I need to be so driven that my wife is becoming more like Christ every day and that I'm a tool and a vessel that God's using to make that happen. Nothing should matter more to me. In this, in this context, which is equally important, you've got the, this, this characteristic ritual cleansing that is reflected in baptism. In baptism, a person is put into the baptismal waters and they're brought back to life symbolically. And there's a cleansing that takes place. Paul explains it to Titus this way. He says there's a washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so this is a reference, in these two verses, this is a reference to that process of regeneration. The husband has the opportunity to bring about a regenerative process in the spiritual life of his wife. It's powerful. Kent Hughes, in his good commentary on Ephesians, says this. Her salvation and sanctification are solely due to the work of Christ. Nevertheless, a prominent instrument in her progressive sanctification has been her loving husband. How did this come about? He was a man in whom God's word richly dwelled, according to Colossians 3.16. As God's word and spirit filled him, he lived out the ethics of the kingdom. That's so good, I'm going to read it again. So good, I'm going to read it again. Listen closely, men, to what this is saying for us. Her salvation... That's your wife coming to faith in Jesus. And her sanctification, the process of her becoming more like Jesus, are solely due to the work of Christ. So you don't get her saved. You don't keep her saved. You don't make her like Jesus. So the pressure of making that happen is off of you. Don't feel the pressure of it, okay? You can't make her like Jesus. Nevertheless, a prominent instrument in her progressive sanctification, let's pause, What is progressive sanctification? It means that it's going to progress over the course of her life. In other words, she should be more like Jesus today than she was a week ago, as you should be more like Jesus than you were a week ago, and a year, and five, and ten, and twenty down the road. So it's a progressive work. Okay, so nevertheless, a prominent instrument in her progressive sanctification has been her loving husband. That means I don't make this happen in her, but I can be an instrument or a vessel that God uses in my wife's life. How did this come about? He was a man in whom God's word richly dwelled. Men, you will never, ever, under any circumstances, live up to God's standard for your life as a husband if you are not immersed in the word of God obediently and worshipfully. It's it's not just critical, it's survival. You'll never be able to work, like you won't be able to figure it out. You won't be able to figure marriage out. You won't be able to lead her. You won't be able to lead your kids. You won't be able to get through the storm. You won't, and, and, if, and here are the lies that men will listen to in their own mind. I, I can't read the Bible in front of my family. I don't have enough spiritual insight. That's why we go to church, so the pastor can do that. Men, you are first and foremost the under-shepherd in charge of the care and spiritual nurturing of that home before the man who stands in the pulpit on Sunday morning. 
That is first your responsibility. And so he says, how did this come about? He was a man in whom God's word richly dwelled. So here's the good news. If we as men will become students of the word of God, it will do its work in us and then do its work out of us. In other words, I don't have to take up the word of God and say, okay, how do I figure out how to take this and use it with my wife and kids? I just take up the word of God and submit to it. And it masters me. And it takes control of my heart and my life, my soul, conviction, comes from the word of God the spirit of God in me and then out of that God will work in and out and through me and his spirit in me will live out the ethics of the kingdom so the question under number two sanctifying love is this is my wife more like Christ because she's been married to me for fill in the blank for John and spicy 52 years for me and little 24 years 25 24 and a half doesn't really matter how long. Can we say that? Can we, like, like can, I, can I say that? That's, that's my goal. Men, read the Bible and pray with and for your wife, your marriage, and your family. Be committed to do this. Something as simple as grabbing hands and standing in a circle. We'll often do this in the kitchen before school. And now I'm at that stage of life where some have left the nest, you know, but some are still there. And some still need Jesus. Most have already got him, and he's got them, and they're believers, but some are unregenerate, and Satan is in them. <laughs> no, we stand around just in a circle. So simple. Monday nights. God, tonight we pray for Gulzar and the believers there in the Himalayas in northern India our brothers and sisters who face persecution as a family, we want to pray for them and ask you to help their, their, their testimony to be real and the light of the gospel to burn in that dark place and to shine into the lives and lives and, and hearts of people and pray that you would grow the church there in that place. In Jesus' name, amen. And as a family, we're praying on mission. Some of you sat in the, in the, the talk yesterday on being a family on mission, and that's what it was all about. Next day, God... I pray that today as we go out of here that each one of us would walk in your favor and that you would guide us, help us to make good choices. Pray for the choices. God, I want to read the word over my family now. Everyone listen and you read the Bible. It's not hard. It's not complex. It's simple and it requires obedience. God's already done the work. The Holy Spirit's going to apply it, man. I can't, there's nothing you can do to enrich your marriage and grow your family that you leapfrog over this to get to, to make it happen. Well, work more hours and have more money. And look, let me tell you something. I, I'll tell you stories that I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. I'll never forget my mom grew up, we grew up without money, literally Never thought I grew up poor, and in America, I guess it's poor. If you compare this to the rest of the world, it wasn't poor. But I can remember uh, growing up, I can remember my mom doing everything she could to just try to make ends meet. And I can remember, uh, I can remember getting to college, and I didn't have a school bill. I, I was fortunate to go to college on a scholarship, and I, was, and I remember my mom sending me $3. And I remember another time she sent me $1. And I remember thinking, that's the most valuable dollar. At that point, you're starting to understand the weight and the gravity of that, right? 
I've never heard a kid, working in student ministry for a quarter of a century now, I've never heard a kid say, you know what just absolutely stinks? My dad shows up in a piece of junk truck to pick me up from school. I'm so embarrassed of that vehicle. You know what I've heard kids say? My dad cares more about money and cars and houses than he cares about my holiness. You can't leapfrog over this to provide for the physical needs of your family. You can't do it. It's not, it's not going to work. So it's simple, but it's deep. Number three, the last one. So, so this love, husbands, love your wives. This love in our text is first uh, sacrificial love. It is next sanctifying love. And third, it is self-love. Now this one's a little bit tricky. Now in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his uh, wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So what does this mean? How, what do we mean by love, like self-love? Well, it's tricky. I try to think, how am I going to explain this? This is going to be hard. Because, like, you know, to say, like, remember the old SNL skit, Stuart Smalley, look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> you know, like, is that what I mean? Like, I gotta love myself. And because a lot of people don't love themselves, a lot of people are self loathing. A lot of people, you, based on maybe nurture and growing up, like, you don't have self confidence, and so you don't have, like, confidence in your ability to lead. It's like, so there's a lot of depth to this idea that the way that I love myself in a spiritual and holy way, rather than in a selfish, compulsive way is to love my wife we're one flesh right we're one flesh it's a powerful picture you ever notice a couple that's been married so long they look alike have you seriously you ever seen that happen you're like they kind of look like each other now literally i'm convinced it's that the longer you are one flesh in relationship literally you start to carry the same mannerisms i know a couple there's a friend a uh, friend of mine and him and his wife they use the exact same mannerisms and little figures of speech why because they've been married for long enough that they're start like like literally you see sort of little little manifestations of the idea that they're one flesh but it, what he's saying is like self-love is reflected in the love that i have for my wife so what's this look like sensitivity to my wife's feelings Ooh, and all the men get it like the S word. Got to be sensitive. I ain't naturally sensitive. Like it's not a natural thing for me. Like it's a sanctifying work for me. Like I'm not. Like I am not naturally a mercy giver. My, I, I'll tell you. How, and neither is my wife. It's not natural. I can tell you, the the best redneck fun we ever had. Literally, the best fun. The funnest one hour of entertainment we ever experienced, someone gave us tickets to a NASCAR race at Bristol. And we went to that race, and I remember when it was, and I don't, I'm not a big NASCAR fan. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm not a big NASCAR fan. But it's like, yeah, I got free tickets, and that'll be cool. we never seen a race, so we went to race. And I remember we let, and, and I, I noticed that, that everybody was getting drunk. I mean, like everybody, not like most of the people here are drunk. No, no, no. All of the people, every people here is drunk. Like, <laughs> I remember a guy in front of me at the beginning of the race, every time, I don't remember who the driver was, you know, would come by that he hated. Because I guess it's like wrestling. Like, you hate a driver as much as you love the other driver. So every time the enemy driver would come by, you know, he's standing up and flipping him off with both fingers, you know. And 
I thought, oh, you're getting him good, buddy. You know, that guy's going by 200 miles an hour. There's 120,000 people up there. And so, you know, and I remember as he got drunker and drunker, eventually he's double fisting long necks, you know, and he's, and he's kind of staggering. And it got to the point where he would, he would get stood up, and about the time he would get them sprung out there, the cars would be halfway around the track over there, you know, and he would kind of flop back down. And then by the end of the race, I remember he was passed out. Like that. <laughs> Uh, holding a couple of bottles you know and so we left that race and I remember we sat at the bottom of this long hill that we were parked across this parking lot and we started down this hill and as we started down this hill it was probably like about the width of a football field so probably 50 yards down this hill 150 feet and real steep and as we start down it three or four people tumble and start rolling (laughs) well we're we're dying laughing like I mean don't even I mean, like, ugly laugh, don't care, don't try to hide it, laughing at drunk people rolling down a hill, you know. That's a good time. And we got on down that hill, and I remember we just parked it right there. We're like, the traffic's bad. We ain't getting out of here. Let's watch this show. For one solid hour, we laughed at drunk people roll down this hill. Big ones, little ones, fat ones, skinny ones, tall ones, short ones. Sometimes two or three at a time. One would fall, the other one would try to hold her up. You know, here they go. And I realized, and I remember getting in the car that day and going, little, I don't think we're very merciful. <laughs> you know, it's not, and we've talked about this. It's not natural for either one of us. We're not, neither one of us is romantic. I remember I tried to write her a poem one time. It was a laughable thing, you know, like, I remember try, I thought I'm trying to make stuff rhyme, and I remember she's like, don't, probably don't ever try to write me a poem again, you know? And we're just laughing. We're just, neither one of us are romantic. We're both doggedly independent. If I die tomorrow, she'd be like, he's a good man. Hey, what, uh, you got, <laughs> whatever's next, you know? Like, let's, and, but I'm glad, like, I'm glad it's like that, you know? So, like, what does it look like to be sensitive when you're not wired for sensitivity? That's the problem, isn't it? Like, you have to work at being sensitive. Some people are overly sensitive, right? My mom, oh, God bless his heart, but God love her. We're at, we're at eating. I was eating with my mom and stepdad the other day. Stopped, pulled off the road. Hey, y'all want to grab lunch? I was coming through. They live about an hour from here. Pull off, we get lunch. The, the server comes up, takes our order, walks off. My mom says, bless her heart. I was like, why? Now, why are we... I'm sorry, why are we blessing her heart right now? I just, did I miss something? You can just see it on her. I was like, I, I was like, what can you see on her? You know, what did I miss? You know, what well, is girl, true story. This girl comes back and my mom starts unloading the gospel on this girl. And this girl just goes, Bleh, and like her life is a train wreck. And the girl walks off and I was like, how do you do that? You know, like. She's like, son, you need to become more sensitive. <laughs> I'm like, I'm working on it. <laughs> Leave me alone. It's not natural for some of us. Some of us are not naturally sensitive to the needs of others. Well, guess what? You better be. We better be, right? We've got to work at this. We've got to be intuitive and tuned in and read the situation and the circumstances. We need wisdom. We need to ask God for wisdom. James chapter 1 says, if any of you needs wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. That's all I got to do is ask. Not great. It's not like a puzzle I got to figure out. It's wisdom. You don't need to figure your wife out, men. You need to ask God for wisdom. And every moment then that you need wisdom, he'll give it to you. You're not figuring anything out. 
You're just making wise choices, being sensitive to the needs of this person, sensitive to the needs of our children. It's critical. Sensitive to needs and feelings. Additionally, self-love is a love that practices patience because I want patience extended to me. Lord knows I need somebody to be patient with me. Self-love is being long-suffering. What's the difference in being long-suffering and practicing patience? I don't know if this is officially the difference, but in the Brody Holloway notebook of differences, it is that this is, like to me, this idea of being long-suffering is trusting the Lord to do the work in that person and giving him time to do it. Like, God's sanctifying this person. He saved her. He saved him. Ladies, if God saved your husband, if he's a Christian, you got to let God work in his timing. It ain't going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen always as quickly as we want it to, so we've got to be long-suffering and apply patience in the moment. How do we do all of this? The summation of how we extend self-love is to extend grace. You want grace extended to you? When you make an absolute joke of yourself, when you make a fool of yourself and you have ruined it, is there nothing more freeing than when that spouse says to you, it's okay, it's okay, I forgive you, really, it's okay. Yeah, man, that's what I want. I need that all the time. So I extend grace, and that is self-love. How is that self-love? Because rather than loving my flesh, I'm loving the work of sanctification in her, which is sanctifying me at the same time. And in that, I'm loving myself the way Christ wants me to love myself. That I'm becoming more like Jesus. So these three things, love like this, sacrificial love, sanctifying love, and self-love. This is holy love, and it's what God requires of us. And this will fulfill us both and empower us both to be mutually loved and respected. Loved and respected. I'll close with an illustration. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of no- and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his truths. How unknowable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So he says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And it says he's unsearchable in his ways. Okay, so there is a depth to the knowledge of God. There is a depth and a complexity to your spouse that in a lifetime you'll never figure out. But that person is created in the image of of an unknowable God. Apart from his revelation, you can never know him. He reveals himself to us. That's how we know it. So there's a depth and a complexity to God that is reflected as image bearers in those of us that have been created in his image. And so if I'm to know this person at the greatest depths, then I've got to know this creator God at the greatest depths that I can possibly know him. And the story is this. Years ago, there was a tsunami. You may remember in the Indian Ocean, I believe it was. And it struck Indonesia and it created devastation. 100,000 maybe killed. 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. And there's actually, we, uh, I showed this illustration with some students about a year ago, and we went and looked it up, and there's a YouTube video. It's a news story about this. I had read it, and this was before the age of YouTube. And so I'd read a story about a group of scuba divers who were out doing a dive. It was a sightseeing sort of tourism thing. They're out doing a dive. They're just off the coast. They're on the bottom of the ocean. I don't know what depth they're at. Maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 feet, whatever. They're down there, and all of a sudden, they're just getting churned like in a washing machine. Just churning, 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 churning. For about 60 seconds, 90 seconds, I I can't remember, something like that, their masks are knocked off, but they're all accomplished divers, and they all survive. 
the water settles. They don't know exactly what's happened. They know something crazy just went on. What, and they kind of gather themselves and they go to their meeting point on the surface. And while they were at that depth, that tidal wave came over and devastated everything inland. And I thought, you know what? If we can dive to the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God, then when the storm washes over our marriage, we're going to get knocked around, but we're going to be okay. When catastrophe hits, we're going to be okay. We're going we're gonna to surface a little bit disoriented, but we're going to be okay. When cancer comes or there's fertility issues or you lose a child or a parent or a job or there's infidelity that happened in the past and you're trying to work through it, the deeper we dive into God's Word, the greater our chance of survival. But what we tend to do is in the chaos, rip the mask off, rip the scuba tank off, and start clawing for the surface. And that's what will kill you. We just go deeper into God's Word, deeper into knowledge of who He is, because we'll never totally figure this other person out. But God reveals more of Himself to us, which gives us discernment and depth of knowledge and wisdom in the moment, and we'll love each other better, and we'll love each other sacrificially and with sanctification in mind, and we'll love each other greater than we love ourselves, which ultimately is like loving myself the way Jesus wants me to love myself. And that's a godly, Christ-like love, and we'll grow closer and stronger. And love and respect will be mutual. And we'll do what God called us to do. We'll fulfill our obligation as husband and wife. Amen? So I'll pray. And we're going to sing, I think, maybe a couple songs to close our time together. So pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, giving it to us for instruction. I thank you for those texts as we've studied tonight that give us uh, a specific teaching where we can just simply follow the road map. It's not ambiguous, although it's not easy. It's not an easy task to accomplish. God, I pray that tonight, uh, where forgiveness needs to be extended between husbands and wives, pray that it would. And where life is good and we're loving Jesus and loving each other and moving forward, I pray that it would be a season of momentum building. Please help us, Lord, to be godly husbands, godly wives, and remember that the world is watching. And what happens in our homes and our marriages and our churches is a, is a testament and a testimony to the world. God, I pray that we would fulfill nothing more than just what you've called us to do and be. And that our marriages would grow strong and our kids would see it. And have something to emulate when they grow old enough to marry or to be husbands and wives or grandparents. That legacy would, would come out of our home that would last for many generations to come. Please bless our time tonight as we close in a time of intimate worship and then a time of intimate conversation and and in a time as husbands and wives are just together away from the busyness of life i pray you'd enrich and bless their time thank you for bringing them here in jesus name amen